Well, thank you, Mariah and the worship team. I'm grateful to be able to sing with all of you and be reminded that we're desperately dependent on God for even every breath we take. Worship should be a really encouraging thing, but it also should be a humbling thing. I am always thankful for the reminder of God's greatness and my very smallness. Uh, I love being here. I love having a sense of a connection to good things God's doing. I had Pastor Greg Harris in class as a student when he was just a youngster uh, at Biola probably over a decade ago now. And to think that he's now serving faithfully as part of this ministry here is a delight. And now to be able to be here and, and be blessed with your presence and be able to worship with you and open the word together is a joy. I come representing my family. This is my family. That's my amazing, godly, beautiful wife, Donna, that I met in high school when we were 16. Now, wow, we had just gotten my license when I met her. And, um, and she really is amazing. And we went from zero children to four children in the past seven years. And there they are. My two girls are with me here this morning. And that's uh, Caroline on the right and Paige on the left. And then Sam in the middle who's nine, and just in January, we adopted Isaac that my wife is holding from China, and so our life is very full these days, and we're grateful. I also want you to get a glimpse of my church. That's a picture of my church. You thought maybe I was going to show you a building, didn't you? Maybe, I don't know. That's, my, that's a much better glimpse of my church than our building. I love that photograph because... There's a beautiful diversity in those people, but there's also something happening in this picture. This is a commissioning service we had for a family that was going to Guinea, West Africa to serve Christ, reaching people who've never heard the gospel. They were going to take their children and go to a very distant, very hard place to live because people needed to hear about Jesus there who've never heard about Christ. And so this is a service we had saying goodbye to them, but, but also laying hands on them and commissioning them to go. I, I love this photograph because it's not just a glimpse of the people of God, it's a glimpse of the people of God mobilizing, the people of God uh, energizing and uh, sending missionaries. And, and that's what I want us to think about this morning. As you're coming to the end of your series through Romans, we find out in today's passage that the whole book of Romans has been a prayer, missionary, support letter. It, it's really amazing when we realize that. But that's what we find out. If you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 15, we'll see that this whole incredible treatise on the gospel, the greatest concentrated, comprehensive, single treatment of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the book of Romans is really a missionary support letter. That's what it is. And Paul lays out the truths of the gospel on the way to asking for support for his ministry, as we'll see today. So what I'd like to do is read, starting at verse 18 from Romans 15, and then we'll unpack some truth from this. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that the spirit who inspired it is here with us this morning. 
Thank you that he enables us to understand your word in a way that changes us. And I pray that that's exactly what would be happening this morning. I pray that we would walk out of here, each of us, knowing you better, knowing your heart for lost people better, and that that same heart would be taking root in all our hearts more because we gathered around your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 15, beginning at verse 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. So Paul actually spoke about a lot of things, didn't he? He spoke about marriage and how parents and children should relate and how the church should function. Paul spoke, a lot, spoke about a lot of things, but he wants to make sure that at the heart of everything we realize is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to be speaking about a lot of things. Paul even tells Timothy, take a little wine for your bad stomach. I mean, he spoke about a lot of issues, but he makes a relative statement here like he does elsewhere when he says things like, uh, I proclaim nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. He's saying, relatively speaking, that is so overwhelmingly important that everything else makes no sense apart from it. And that's what he's saying here. He said, my message fundamentally, foundationally, and fully was Christ Jesus. That's who I came to proclaim. He wants to know that even that proclamation and whatever's accomplished through it comes through Christ's ministry through him. And what he's preaching for is for, in particular, Gentiles to come to obedience. And so Paul has this idea that faith in Christ leads to obedience to Christ. Got to make that connection. It's a tragic disconnect when we don't see the connection between faith in Christ and obedience to Christ. The obedience of faith is this beautiful term that Paul uses. It's, it's a necessary outgrowth of trusting Jesus that you obey Jesus. And that's what he wants Gentiles to come to, this, this obedience of faith, this obedience faith leads to. And so he is proclaiming Christ so that people come to trust Christ and then live lives of obedience and submitting to Jesus. He's particularly seeking to reach Gentiles. This is just a beautiful design of God. I'm wondering, are there any Gentiles here this morning? Would you raise your hand if you're a Gentile? Do you not know the difference? Some of you are confused, I think. Any Jews in here? That'll make it easy. Any people of Jewish? Yes! Tell me your name. You're of Jewish descent? You're the only one who raised your hand. Tell me your name. Mandy. Oh, Mandy, that's beautiful. So is anyone besides Mandy of Jewish descent? Oh, a couple. Okay, but the rest of us, so three out of what? However many are Gentiles. And do you know, isn't it amazing that you can actually trace, if you're a Christian this morning, if you're part of the family of God, you can trace that reality back to Paul's ministry as the pioneer missionary to the Gentiles. I love, I love Paul because of this, that, that he's in a sense our spiritual great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather as the, the pioneer missionary to the Gentiles. And he's saying in particular, he wants to make sure that the Gentiles are reached in this way. 
That's what he's after. He wants to see them come to obedience. And I love that it says in verse 18, he wants to do this by word and deed. So his life and his message and his words, it's never either or for us. That's one of the great false dichotomies I hear, quite often these days especially, that it's always word and deed. We swing on pendulums in the church and sometimes we emphasize word at the expense of deed. Sometimes, like I think the pendulum is swinging now, especially among the younger generations, we emphasize deed more than word. And we need both. That's like asking which wing of the airplane would you like? Both, please. And we need word and deed. We need to let people know why it is we're living the way we do. It's because of Jesus. And so we know by word and deed that this ministry is coming about. And, and by the power of the Spirit, the power of signs and wonders, the Spirit of God is working in ways that aren't just explained by human ingenuity or strategy, but by the powerful Spirit of God. And then the result of all of this is what? So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he wants Jesus to be proclaimed and he has this sense of his calling to these particular places reaching these Gentile peoples. And he says, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Ambition sort of is a dirty word, especially to Christians, I think, that, oh, just be really passive and placid. No, we should be the most ambitious people on the planet. There's sanctified ambition. There's passionate, motivated, ambitious seeking to be used by God for great things. Now, we need to let him define great things. He's the one who defines it. For great for God, it's like washing people's feet, right? And being the servant of all. But laying down your life and faithfulness is at the heart of doing great things for God. But we are able to be part of his amazing work in this world of preaching the gospel, the words of eternal life, holding them out for people so that they can find life. And he in particular, look, wants to do this where Christ has already not been named. So not where there are viable churches. He's saying if there's a good, viable, growing church that's having a witness, that's having an influence, then I'm not interested for my primary calling. I want to build that up. But I want to go where there is no viable church. Go where the gospel's not being proclaimed. Going where disciples are not being made. That's his calling. And we've got to have a sense of the importance of that calling. We all need to own that same vision, even if the details of our lives don't lead to that. He says, lest I build on someone else's foundation. That's not his calling. He says this, but as it is written, those uh, who have never been told of him will see, and those who've never heard will understand. So he's wanting to push the boundaries of gospel proclamation in viable local churches. And then I love this, verse 22. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. So this calling, this burden to reach these people is something that has actually detained him often from doing the thing he might have wanted to do the most. Wow, is that an important message. We have all sorts of desires and things we'd like to do and things we uh, enjoy doing, but sometimes they need to be put on a back burner, if not taken off the stove entirely, for what God has as front burner things for us. Verse 22. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I 
have longed for many years to come to you. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. In passing, that's quite a detour, Paul. And to help, and to be helped, here's the missionary support letter, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. He's preparing them to help him. He's asking for support. Just love this. Have you ever gone on a mission trip or sought to be used by God in any way or sought to uh, minister to people and you get just entirely bogged down by the details of all of it? And sometimes you even get a missionary support letter, even for a short-term mission trip, and it seems to be nothing about the gospel. It's about visas and vaccinations and, and travel arrangements and, and all these things that oh, we need to pray about and we need to be concerned about. But sometimes you get the sense that the details so dominate our thinking that we lose sight of the grand vision of why we're going in the first place. And we need to keep the vision before us. We, we need to understand what God's up to in the world and how our little story translates into his story. And so we get thrilled about this venture. It's not just this little world we live in. It's a great big story God's unfolding that we get to be a part of. It's an incredible privilege. And so Paul writes this whole missionary support letter loaded down with massive gospel truth because that's what's dominating his thought. The gospel, the good news that Christ brings to us when he brings himself to us. That's what he has for us, the good news about himself. And so he says, I, I'm looking to be supportive of you. He's preparing them to support him with, with uh, emotional, relational, financial, spiritual support. And then this is interesting. He holds up a couple of other churches, I think, to inspire a little bit of sanctified competitiveness. You know, the Bible has a place for competition. It says things like, outdo one another in showing honor. Ah, see, there's a place to say, oh, that's a good example. That's why I ask people, uh, uh, like my friend, uh, how, how much you giving these days? What's your giving look like? That's a strange thing to ask people. Most people don't talk like that, right? I think a bunch of men would be more willing to talk about their, their internet improprieties than how much they give. But, no, but, but Paul is calling us to consider what we give, and he's holding up these churches now, look. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For, how am I doing that? How's that possible? Oh, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. He's holding up these two churches that he's visited that have delighted in giving to support this less well-off church in Jerusalem, this struggling, battled, persecuted church in Jerusalem. And so he's holding these churches up for the Romans to consider just a beautiful picture. These churches have been happy to do this, to make a contribution to the poor among the saints of Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it. Says it again. They were happy to do it. It wasn't some dutiful, oh, I have to do this because I'm a Christian and I'm supposed to give here. No, they're happy to do it. It brings delight to their hearts to be giving in this way. They're pleased to do it. And indeed, they owe it to them. Oh, oh, Paul's got an interesting perspective here. How is it they owe this sort of delightful giving? For if the Gentiles have come to share in their, the Jewish believers, spiritual blessings, 
they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. He's saying, look, the Gentiles have so incredibly, infinitely been blessed by the Jewish people as the means by which God brings about these covenant promises. They've been grafted into them now and they have infinite heavenly treasures because of these people. Oh, so they should be, del- they should be delighted to do this. It should never be begrudging. They realize how incredibly blessed they've been and so they want to eagerly bless in return. They owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in the material blessings. When therefore I have completed this, this, this journey to bless them with this provision in Jerusalem and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So he wants the Romans to know how confident he is that his ministry is blessed by Christ, fully blessed. And please know this about God. God loves to bless. Do you know what he says right in the creation account? It says, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. He blessed them and said that. He doesn't ever call us to something without providing a means to do it. Grace always precedes command with God. Kindness and favor and blessing always precedes, is always being provided by God when he calls us to something. That's why we can go in confidence. When God calls us to something like the Great Commission, reaching the nations, reaching the lost with the gospel, you can count on his provision in that. He's never going to leave you high and dry when you follow him faithfully and fulfill the great commission. No, he loves to bless. That's the kind of God he is. So Paul's confident of that. He comes in the fullness of the the blessing, the honoring of Christ. I think it's almost unfortunate we say, God bless you when people sneeze. Right? Not you. God bless you. And we, we forget the power of a blessing. A blessing is this favor bestowed upon. You should at least lay hands on someone when, no, you don't want because they got a cold maybe. That's why you're saying. No, but you want to give them favor. And that's what God is saying to us. He, he comes in the blessing, the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And then listen to this, verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, based on their family bond, by our Lord Jesus Christ, So he emphasizes the lordship of Jesus, that he has authority over us in our lives. And by the love of the Spirit. Oh, I love that phrase. When the Spirit comes into our hearts, one of the fundamental things he does is pour out the love of God into those hearts. So that they get filled up with love and overflow with godly love toward others. When the Spirit comes, he brings a loving heart with him every time. If you hear someone claiming to be anointed by the Spirit and they're not loving, go ahead and call them a liar. Because anytime the Spirit's at work, the love of God is flowing from someone's heart. And he says that's, that's what's being provided by the Spirit, the love of the Spirit. By these things, strive together, work hard together with me, like I'm working hard with you, in your prayers to God on my behalf. So pray for me. He says that the heart of your ministry for me, for the advance of the gospel through me, is your prayer on my behalf. 
ministry is always grounded in prayer. Missions is always grounded in prayer. It's got to be if it's going to have any lasting value. God loves prayer because at the heart of prayer is a heart of dependence. So I love the posture of being on your knees in prayer. You, you can't do very much on your knees, right? And that's a good posture to be in or on your face because, because your, your inactivity, your, your inability to produce much in that posture is a good sign because you're saying, Lord, you need to do this. I'm utterly dependent on you for this. And he calls them to pray for him. And that spirit of love, the spirit pours into our hearts, shows up in your prayer for people. It's the first frontline way you minister and love people. It's by praying for them. That's, that's what he wants from us, is prayerfulness, or else the whole thing is a farce. Now, what does he want them to pray on his behalf? 31, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Persecution will come, but enable me to continue the ministry of the gospel in the midst of that persecution. And that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Allow them to receive me, even though I'm not a trusted guy sometimes in Jerusalem, Paul says. So that by God's will I may come to you with joy. And be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Oh, just beautiful. I, I love the passage, the, the passion brimming out of Paul's heart here. I mean, are you picking this up, this passion for God, for the gospel of Christ, for the Spirit's work, for these people who he holds so dear? He's gripped by the good news of Jesus Christ. What are you gripped by? If someone listened to you talk in a week, if they added up all your talk in a week, what would you speak most passionately about? The angels, surfing, your 401k status, I, I don't know. What, what would you be most passionate about? It's fine to be passionate about those kinds of things. But a human heart only has so much capacity for passion. If you just load in all this passion for all sorts of secondary or tertiary or peripheral things, will you have enough room in your heart for the central passion of God's glory among the nations? Listen up this missionary Floyd McClung. He says this, we live in a world of competing passions. If you do not die to self and fill your life with the consuming passion of the worship of God in the nations, you'll end up with other passions instead. It's possible to deceive ourselves into thinking we have biblical passions when in reality all we've done is to baptize the values of our culture and give them Christian names. We are so good at this. We are so good at reading the Bible and domesticating it and Americanizing it and enculturating it and reinterpreting it in a way that it would never be read in any other context so it fits with our lives rather than making sure our lives fit with the scriptures. We're really good at, at tweaking things and making God and his ways so much more user-friendly than they are when we find them in the scriptures. 
I think that's an important thought, that we baptize the values of our culture and give them Christian names. It doesn't matter what you call them if it doesn't look biblical. And so he, he's, he's calling us, he'll say, he says this, he, McClung in conclusion, we will have chosen apostolic passion, the kind of passion we've been looking at this morning. Only when our hearts are filled with God's desire for his son to be worshipped in the nations. I think you could define a Christian as someone who has beheld the very glory of God in the face of Christ. And because of that, they're never the same. You could talk about saying a prayer, walking down an aisle, or, or going through a religious ceremony or something. But, but if you've never been gripped by the glory of God in the face of Christ in a way that has left you forever changed, where you have a sense that you belong to God now, that when that happened, he said, you're coming with me now. I'm, I'm the Lord of your life. I'm your creator, and you belong to God now. He seized your life. That's never been the same. And invariably, when God overwhelms you in that way, his truth must overflow from you. The truth of that glory that's gripped you must overflow from you. And so people who've been truly gripped by the glory of God just can't be content unless they're doing something to help others behold that glory too. It never just stays here. We're never intended to be spiritual cul-de-sacs with the glory of God. We're supposed to be these super highways where, where we become aware of it and then it gets translated into lots of other lives and nations. That's what we're called to. I am, I am deeply concerned at this point in my life. I, my good friend Dave Talley, his father-in-law just died last week. He sent a picture of his son Andrew as one of the pallbearers on this American flag draped casket. Do you know I have a deep, deep concern that that generation with those flag draped caskets from World War II, that generation forged in the Depression, at an early age, impressed by their own frailty and by the war, their own mortality, had character that was shaped that led to kingdom-minded living. I, I wrote to Dave when he told me his father-in-law died. I said, Dave, it seems like every day we just keep taking one step closer to the front of the line. You ever have that sense that, whoa, I'm really close to the front of the line now. And as I've always looked to the front of the line. And it seems like my whole life it's been that World War II generation. And here's, here's at least three of the things I'm deeply concerned we're losing as we lose that generation. One, prayerfulness. Prayerfulness. There, there was a prayerfulness that your own frailty and your own mortality will lead to in your life. There was a giving, there, there was a willingness to give of resources. There wasn't a, such a concern that, that you collect as much as you can. There was this beautiful commitment to giving. And the third thing was there was a commitment to missions. In the old school traditional sense of the word. Knowing that there were a third of the people on the planet who've never heard the gospel. And we needed to use our resources for that third. You know, a third of the world claims to be Christians. Another third are what we would call evangelized Christians, Christian, uh, non-Christians, where there are viable churches even though those people aren't Christians, but a third of the world doesn't have viable churches where they are. 
And that, that older generation, always I remember so clearly, was very concerned about that third that didn't have a viable church, that didn't have a gospel proclamation. And, and they, they loved this idea of reaching the nations. They also suffered with faith really well too. I, I am concerned that my generation and the ones coming up behind me just aren't up to the calling that stepping to the front of the line requires in these things. One of the men who influenced me most in my life was a man named Robert Coleman, godly man. He's in his mid-80s now, and, and he was just an incredible missionary evangelist, passionate for the gospel. He so understood the things we're talking about this morning, and Robert Coleman got that way because of his mother. That's what he'll tell you. If people ask him all the time, how in the world? Did you? He's in his mid-80s, and, and he would be preaching his heart out, I mean, way louder than I am here this morning. This man is gripped by Christ. And if you ask Coleman, how'd you get that way? He'd say, my mother. His mother wanted to be a missionary. She loved missions. And then she married an Iowa farmer. Wasn't going to work out. So she became a farmer's wife for her whole adult life. But she raised two boys, and she passed on that passion for missions to Lyman and Robert Coleman. And these men, I think when we get to heaven and we count the people who've come to Christ through the ministries of these two brothers, raised by their mom, with this missionary passion, it's going to take a long time to add it all up. Do you know the last words this farmer's wife said to her sons at her bed, when they were at her bedside as she was dying? The last words they ever heard her utter on the planet were this. Boys, make sure my missionary pledges are paid up. She died with missions on her mind. And she passed it on to this, this coming generation behind her. And, and they passed it on to men like me and countless others. We've got to get this. We've got to understand that there are so many passions that are competing for our hearts. What's the one that really grips you? It's got to be the glory of Christ proclaimed and worshiped in the nations. John Piper's excellent book, Let the Nations Be Glad, has this powerful sentence. Missions exist because worship doesn't. There are places where Christ isn't worshipped, and so missions is driven by that. It's not primarily driven by some, oh, I've got to go tell you about this even though you don't really want to hear it. No, it's an overflowing of a beholding of the glory of God. That's what we've come to realize as Christians, that our DNA needs to be loaded with great commission concern. One of the reasons I left a really good school where I was teaching in another part of the country to come to Biola is because... You could feel the Great Commission there. There was a sense of let's do something with all this scholarship. Let's not just get smarter. Let's make a difference for the advance of the gospel. And our driving passion needs to sound a whole lot like what we've read this morning. This desire to see Christ worshipped in this way. This is the Great Commission. I hope I hope you all know it by heart. Jesus, as he he goes, gives the great commission. He has grounded in the great commandment to love God. But this great commission says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So all nations, such an important word here in the New Testament. Uh, this this pantata ethne, this word ethne is, is, don't think geographical boundaries. You'll know how unhelpful that is if you live through the collapse of the Soviet Union. Remember what happened to our maps when that happened? Suddenly the way we define nations radically change, right? So we can't depend on that. Well, what do we mean by nations? We mean there are people groups who have their languages and their cultures. And there, there are a third of those in the world that have no viable church. They haven't been reached. It's, it's actually more like raider nation. You know, it's a subculture of people that uh, apparently haven't been reached. It, yeah, it's, it's, it's this, this, yes! All right. I did not intend that. It wasn't in the notes. Yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's a people group. And what's interesting is the church is, a, uh, the, the church is a people group. Look, it's a holy nation. That's how we're described. We're a people group. We've got a, a, a way of talking, a way of living, a, a culture that is created by the gospel. That's who we become. And what that leads to is this desire to see other ethne come to know this and in a, in a sense become part of the church. This people he's created for his own possession that is made up this, this incredible unified diversity of people from every tongue, tribe, nation on the planet. And see, that's when God's glorified the way he's intended to be. He should be. That's when he's glorified the way we're created to enjoy him and then pass that joy on. I, I love that you're having, I just saw a poster around here that, that there's a bone marrow screening going on. I thought, oh, they did this for me, for my sermon, because I thought that's a perfect way to think about what we're talking about. But, you know, the gospel becomes definitional to who you are. It becomes life-giving to who you are. It's inside of who you are now. The Spirit of God has taken root in your life. And like bone marrow, it's just in us now. And when we preach the gospel, we're taking this life-giving reality within us and we're, we're by the Spirit's miraculous power seeing it transplanted into other people so that they don't have to die. So they can live and they can have, have new life with this transformational, powerful transplant. It's something that flows out of us into them. And it doesn't become about us then. We become so self-consumed. Oh, the saddest people in the world are the most self-consumed people. But when you see Christ for who he is, and then you live with reckless abandon to see the nations reached, now that's living. That's living. You know, I come from a family with some amazing missionaries in it. I come from a family of some real wackos too. But, uh, but I come from a family of missionaries and, and uh, my family moved here from Eastern Europe and my mother's side of the family to Pennsylvania. They worked in factories. They were factory people. And, and my uncle Mike Kerlack came from Eastern Europe and he moved to Pennsylvania and he's working in the factory and one day a guy comes up and gives him a gospel tract on the, on the sidewalk and he reads this gospel tract, so simple. He reads the gospel that Jesus came to take his place on a cross and die for his sins and rise from the dead so he wouldn't have to die and he had never heard the gospel like that before. He grew up in a very formalistic church that didn't preach the gospel. Didn't he? he never even had a Bible. And he read this gospel track. And I have this little quick testimony that, that he wrote when he retired from the mission field after 47 years. And, and listen to what he says. 
He reads his tract and he says, and I prayed and I prayed, God, if there's any power in that blood of Jesus that was shed for my sins, let it be applied to my heart right now. This is my Uncle Mike, actually. You saw that picture really quick. That's my Uncle Mike. Look at that. There's Mike. (laughs) Told you I'm moving to the front of the line. Here he is. This is what he said. I said, may the heart, that blood be applied to my heart right now. He said, I had never heard a prayer before. In fact, like that, I had never been to a gospel preaching church before or talked to real Christians before, except for that man who gave me that track. And as soon as I uttered that simple prayer, the burden of sin was lifted and I knew I had been saved. He said, I said nothing at home at first, but of course, eventually my father found out. My great-grandfather, his father was a raging alcoholic. He became extremely angry and wanted me to know that he did not approve of my being what he termed a salvationist. He ordered me to abandon my new religion and return to the church I grew up in. But I told him I could never do that. Then he ordered me out of the home. I found other quarters where I could live, but occasionally I would steal home when I thought my father was working. Twice he caught me at home. Once he grabbed a butcher knife to stab me, but my brother-in-law stood behind him and caught his arm. While my father turned to see who had interfered, I slipped out the door. Another time, he tried to choke me to death, but God interfered miraculously that time. Finally, I left for Nyack, New York to prepare for missionary work for the Lord had revealed to me that I was to serve him in Africa. Just before sailing for France and then on to Africa, I visited my father. He was quite calm this time, but of course thought it was ridiculous for me to go to a place where there were cannibals. He said that he hoped they would finish the work he had meant to do. In other words, kill me. I was assigned to begin missionary work in Timbuktu. Reverend William Martin and I were the first to begin work and live there. This was a strong Muslim city and therefore we had opposition, but eventually we praised the Lord for the souls that did emerge out of darkness seeking the true and living God. As we review the last 47 years, we can only rejoice at what God has done. If we had another life to live, we would gladly give it for Africa. We found joy and peace and blessing in the service of the king. Oh, is that glorious? To be gripped by Christ, the glory of Christ in a way where you don't consider just your little, tidy, convenient, comfortable life first and foremost, but reaching the nations, whatever that means, that's living. Help us, Father, to not settle for a life that is so passive and pitiful and puny. Help us to seek to live for what really matters. Thank you for Christ and the amazing glory we see in his face. And I pray that each of us this morning would be gripped by it like never before. And that that would lead to a a bold gospel proclamation, Lord, so that we would either be those who go or those who send. Because we know the only other option is to be disobedient. Lord, help us to be faithful, simply faithful to what you call us to as your people. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.